Chapter 2 How Christianity was Revived in England in the Middle of the Eighteenth Century No well-informed person would ever attempt to deny the fact that a great change for the better has come over England in this nineteenth century. You might as well attempt to deny that there was a Protestant Reformation in the days of Luther. There has been a vast change for the better. Both in religion and morality the country has gone through a complete revolution. People neither think nor talk nor act as they did in 1750. It is a great fact that the children of this world cannot deny, no matter how they might try to explain it. They might as well try to persuade us that high water and low water at London Bridge are one and the same thing. However, by what means was this great change brought about? To whom are we indebted for the immense improvement in religion and morality that undoubtedly has come over the land? Whom did God use to bring about the great English Reformation of the eighteenth century? This is the one point that I want to examine generally in this chapter. I will reserve the names and biographies of the main people for future chapters. The government of the country cannot take any credit for the change. Morality cannot be called into being by laws and statutes. People were never yet made religious by acts of Parliament. Nevertheless, the Parliaments and administrations of the eighteenth century did as little for Christianity and morality as any that ever existed in England. Neither did the change come from the Church of England as a body. The leaders of that venerable group were utterly unequal to the times. Left to herself, the Church of England would probably have died of dignity and sunk her anchors. The change did not come from the dissenters, either. Content with their barely won triumphs, that worthy body of men seemed to rest upon their oars. In the full enjoyment of their rights of conscience they forgot the great vital principles of their forefathers, and their own duties and responsibilities. Who then were the reformers of the eighteenth century? To whom are we indebted under God for the change that took place? The men who were used by God to bring about deliverance for us a hundred years ago were a few individuals, most of them clergymen of the established church, whose hearts God touched about the same time in various parts of the country. They were not wealthy or highly connected. They didn't have money to buy followers, and they didn't have family influence to command attention and respect. They were not promoted by any church, party, society, or institution. They were simply men whom God stirred up and brought out to do His work without previous program or plan. They did His work in the old apostolic way, by becoming the evangelists of their day. They taught one set of truths. They taught them in the same way, with fire, reality, and determination, as men fully convinced of what they taught. They taught them in the same spirit, always loving, compassionate, and, like Paul, even weeping, but always bold, unflinching, and without fearing the face of man. They taught them with the same plan, always acting on the offensive, not waiting for sinners to come to them, but going after and seeking sinners. They did not sit idle until sinners offered to repent, but they assaulted the high places of ungodliness like men storming a breach, giving sinners no rest as long as they stuck to their sins. The movement of these courageous evangelists shook England from one end to the other. At first people in high places tended to despise them. The educated people mocked at them as fanatics. 
the clever people made jokes and invented irreverent names for them. The Church of England closed her doors to them. The dissenters turned the cold shoulder to them. The ignorant mob persecuted them. But the movement of these few evangelists went on and made itself felt in every part of the land. People were moved and awakened to think about religion. Many were shamed out of their sins. Many were restrained and frightened at their own ungodliness. Many were gathered together and compelled to profess a settled and heartfelt trust in Jesus Christ. Many were converted. Many who at first disliked the movement secretly desired to be part of it. The little sapling became a strong tree. The little creek became a deep, broad stream. The little spark became a steadily burning flame. A candle was lit, and we are still now enjoying the benefit. The feeling of all classes in the land gradually took on a completely different attitude about true religion and morality. All this, under God, was accomplished by a few unsupported, unpaid adventurers. When God takes a work in hand, nothing can stop it. When God is for us, none can be against us. Romans 8.31 The methods by which the spiritual reformers of the eighteenth century carried out their work was of the simplest description. It was neither more nor less than the old apostolic weapon of preaching. The sword that Paul wielded with such mighty results when he assaulted the strongholds of heathenism eighteen hundred years ago was the same sword by which they won their victories. To say, as some have done, that they neglected education and schools is totally incorrect. Wherever they gathered congregations, they cared for the children. To say, as others have done, that they neglected the sacraments is simply false. Those who make that assertion only expose their entire ignorance of the religious history of England a hundred years ago. It would be easy to name men among the leading reformers of the eighteenth century whose communicants could be counted by the hundreds, and who honored the Lord's Supper more than forty-nine out of fifty clergymen of their day. Beyond a doubt, though, preaching was their favorite weapon. They wisely went back to first principles and took up apostolic plans. They held with Paul that a minister's first work is to preach the gospel. Mark 16, 15. They preached everywhere. If the pulpit of a parish church was open to them, they gladly preached from it. If it could not be obtained, they were just as ready to preach in a barn. No place was unsuitable for them. In the field or by the roadside, on the village green or in a marketplace, in lanes or in alleys, in cellars or in lofts, on a stand or on a table, on a bench or on a step, wherever hearers could be gathered, the spiritual reformers of the eighteenth century were ready to speak to them about their souls. They were instant in season and out of season, Second Timothy 4.2, in doing the fisherman's work, and they compassed sea and land in carrying forward their father's business. This was all something new. Can we be surprised that it produced a great impact? They preached simply. They rightly concluded that the very first requirement for a sermon is that it should be understood. They saw clearly that thousands of able and well-composed sermons are utterly useless if they are above the heads of the hearers. They strove to come down to the level of the people and to speak what the poor and simple could understand. 
To attain this, they were not ashamed to crucify their style and to sacrifice their reputation for learning. To attain this, they used illustrations and anecdotes in abundance, and like their divine master, they borrowed lessons from every object in nature. They carried out the proverb of Augustine, A wooden key is not as beautiful as a golden one, but if it can open the door when the golden one cannot, it is far more useful. These men revived the style of sermons in which Martin Luther and Hugh Latimer used to be so eminently successful. They saw the truth of what the great German reformer meant when he said, No one can be a good preacher to the people who is not willing to preach in a manner that seems childish and common to some. This was all new again a hundred years ago. They preached fervently and directly. They cast aside that dull, cold, heavy, lifeless mode of delivery that had long made sermons a very proverb for dullness. They proclaimed the words of faith with faith, and the story of life with life. They spoke with fiery zeal, like men who were absolutely convinced that what they said was true, and that it was of the utmost importance to your eternal interest to hear it. They spoke like men who had received a message from God to the people and they knew that they had to deliver it and had to have your attention while they delivered it. They threw heart and soul and feeling into their sermons, and their hearers went home convinced that the preacher was sincere and desired the eternal well-being of the people. They believed that they had to speak from the heart if they wanted to speak to the heart. They knew that there had to be unmistakable faith and conviction within the pulpit if there was to be faith and conviction among the pews. All this had become almost obsolete a hundred years ago. Can we be surprised that it took people by storm and produced an immense effect? What was the substance and subject matter of the preaching that produced such a wonderful impact a hundred years ago? I will not insult my listeners' common sense by only saying that it was simple, earnest, fervent, real, congenial, brave, lifelike, and so forth, but I want you to know that it was highly doctrinal, dogmatic, and distinct. The strongholds of the eighteenth century's sins would never have been cast down by mere sincere teaching. The trumpets that blew down the walls of Jericho were trumpets that gave a certain sound. The English evangelists of the eighteenth century were not men of uncertain beliefs. What was it that they proclaimed? A little information on this point might be useful. The spiritual reformers of the eighteenth century constantly taught the sufficiency and supremacy of Holy Scripture. The Bible, whole and complete, was their only standard of faith and practice. They accepted all its statements without question or dispute. They knew nothing of any part of Scripture being uninspired. They never believed that man has any verifying ability within him by which Scripture statements can be weighed, rejected, or received. They never hesitated to declare that there can be no error in the Word of God, and that when we cannot understand or reconcile some part of its contents, the fault is in the interpreter and not in the text. In all their preaching, they were eminently men of one book. They were content to affix their faith to that book and to stand or fall by it. This was one great characteristic of their preaching. They honored, loved, and reverenced the Bible. The reformers of the eighteenth century constantly taught the total corruption of human nature.
They knew nothing of the modern notion that Christ is in everyone and that everyone possesses something good within that they only have to stir up and use in order to be saved. They never flattered men and women in this way. They told them plainly that they were dead and must be made alive again, that they were guilty, lost, helpless, hopeless, and in imminent danger of eternal ruin. As strange and paradoxical as it might seem to some, their first step toward making people good was to show them that they were utterly bad. Their main argument in persuading people to do something for their souls was to convince them that they could do nothing at all. The reformers of the eighteenth century constantly taught that Christ's death upon the cross was the only satisfaction for our sin, that when Christ died, He died as our substitute, the just for the unjust. 1 Peter 3 18. This, in fact, was the main point in almost all their sermons. They never taught the modern doctrine that Christ's death was only a great example of self-sacrifice. They saw in it something far higher, greater, and deeper than this. They saw in it the payment of man's mighty debt to God. They loved Christ's person, they rejoiced in Christ's promises, and they urged people to walk after Christ's example. But the one subject above all others concerning Christ that they delighted to dwell on was the sin atoning blood that Christ shed for us on the cross. The reformers of the eighteenth century constantly taught the great doctrine of justification by faith. They told people that faith was the one thing needful in order to obtain a saving interest in Christ's work for their souls. They taught that before we believe, we are dead. And have no part in Christ, and that the moment we do believe, we live and have a full claim to all Christ's benefits. Justification by virtue of church membership and justification without believing or trusting were ideas to which they gave no support. The very heart of their preaching was that if you will believe, and the moment you believe, it is everything, and if you don't believe, you have nothing. The reformers of the eighteenth century constantly taught the universal necessity of heart conversion and being made a new creation by the Holy Spirit. They proclaimed everywhere to the crowds they addressed, You must be born again. They never taught that people become children of God by baptism, or that they can be children of God while practicing the will of the devil. The regeneration that they preached was not a dormant, passive, lifeless thing. It was something that could be seen, recognized, and known by its effects. The reformers of the eighteenth century also constantly taught the inseparable connection between true faith and personal holiness. They never for a moment taught that church membership or religious profession was the slightest proof of anyone being a true Christian if he lived an ungodly life. A true Christian, they insisted, must always be known by his fruits, and these fruits must be clearly demonstrated and unmistakable in all areas of life. No fruits, no grace, was the unvarying tone of their preaching. Finally, the reformers of the eighteenth century constantly taught, as doctrines both equally true, God's eternal hatred against sin and God's love toward repentant sinners. They knew nothing of a love lower than hell, or a heaven where both the holy and unholy are all to be allowed in. 
They used the utmost plainness of speech, both about heaven and hell. They never hesitated to declare in the plainest terms the certainty of God's judgment and of wrath to come on those who persist in unrepentance and unbelief. And yet they never ceased to magnify the riches of God's kindness and compassion and to plead with all sinners to repent and turn to God before it was too late. These were the main truths that the English evangelists of the eighteenth century were constantly preaching. These were the principal doctrines that they were always proclaiming, whether in town or in country, whether in church or in the open air, whether among rich or among poor. These were the doctrines by which they turned England upside down, made farmers and miners weep until their dirty faces were lined with tears, captured the attention of peers and philosophers, stormed the strongholds of Satan, plucked thousands like brands from the burning, Amos 4, 11, Zechariah 3, 1 to 2, and changed the character of the age. Call them simple and elementary doctrines if you want. Say that you see nothing great, remarkable, new, or special about this list of truths. However, the fact is undeniable that God blessed these truths to the Reformation of England in the 1700s. What God has blessed is not good for man to despise.